Society is produced by our wants and governed by our wickedness. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. Those are the words of Thomas Paine, the most radical architect of the United States of America, who, according to historian Sidney Hook, lived in a blaze of political glory and died in relative obscurity. In this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast and our Myth is America series, Jared and I sit down and discuss the life and works of the original T-Pain. Thomas Paine was born in the small village of Thetford, England in 1737. His family wasn't poor, but they weren't wealthy either. They lived a basically humble existence. Um, his father was a Quaker, which is important because that informs some of Paine's views on slavery and religion, which we'll get to in a little bit. And his father was a master stay maker. Do you know what a stay maker is? Uh, no, you're going to have to educate me here. I uh, didn't. As a history guy, you're, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Yeah, I had no idea either. It is a person who makes women's corsets. Wonderful. Did not know that. Yes, so his father was a master staymaker. Um, his mother was a daughter of a local attorney, which I hate using that because the only reference we have of his mother is that who her father was, which sucks, but I... Didn't take the time, nor could I find easily any information uh, more on his mother. But that's all we get. Um, interestingly, in a time when education was not compulsory, it wasn't required for people to attend school, Payne's family did arrange to pay for him to go to grammar school. So this was not common at the time. And we obviously see the fruits of this later on when uh, he's an incredibly talented writer. Uh, so he received many years of formal education before leaving the a uh, school at the age of 13 to become an apprentice in his father's shop. So he became an apprentice staymaker. Um, and then he works his way up. He works as a journeyman staymaker in London and then in a few other towns as a master staymaker. And interestingly, his time as a maker of women's clothing gets used against him by his political opponents uh, later on when they are writing replies to some of his works. So just an interesting little tidbit. In 1759, he opens his own stay-making shop, and he marries a woman, but the next year, uh, both his wife and his uh, daughter, uh, I guess I don't know if it's a daughter, his wife and their child die in childbirth. So his first wife uh, is pregnant, she goes to have the child, and she dies during childbirth. So the child and the baby die. He's 23 years old at this point, so he's uh, suffered some loss. He leaves the profession of staymaking in the 1760s, uh, sometime in his 20s, and he works as an excise tax officer, uh, so he's a tax collector, basically, uh, in England. But he gets fired for being a tax collector because he falsifies a report. He claims that he inspected some goods that he didn't actually inspect, so he gets fired from that. He then works as a school teacher in London for a brief period of time. 
1768, he gets reinstated as an excise tax officer in the town of Lewes, Sussex, which is about 50 miles south of London. And he shortly after that marries his second wife. And he, at the same time as being a tax collector, runs her father's tobacco shop. So he's now sort of somewhat of an entrepreneur, I guess, while he's collecting taxes. Um, his political action in England, he only really does one thing, and this is in the winter of 1772 to 1773. He's 35 years old at this point. He spends that winter in London fighting for a salary increase for excise tax collectors. And he writes his first political pamphlet. It's titled case of the excise officers. And in this pamphlet, he argues for this increase in salaries. It's actually pretty popular. Uh, historians say that it sells 4,000 copies uh, in the first few months after he writes it. Uh, this was his only political action in England, and it got him straight dismissed from being a tax collector. So he gets <laughs> fired uh, again for being a tax collector uh, by fighting this fight to try to get an increase in wages and publishing this incredibly popular pamphlet. So then he gets fired for writing this, so he's no longer a tax collector. He's only running his wife's tobacco shop. Then in the next year, the tobacco shop also goes out of business. Then also within that year, uh, he separates from his second wife. So within the course of a year, he gets fired from his position as a tax collector the tobacco shop that he's running goes out of business, and he basically gets divorced. So all of that happens. Were all those interrelated? I'm sure they <laughs> were, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's all downhill for Thomas Paine uh, during that short period in his life. Um, interestingly, he does talk about his experience as a tax collector in England and how this influences some of his uh, opinions he says that he sees uh, all kinds of inequities in society. Uh, this is a quote. He says, he got to, quote, to see the numerous and various distresses which the weight of taxes, even at that time of day, occasioned. So he gets to go. He's trying to collect taxes from people, and he sees their inability to pay uh, the poverty, inequality, etc. So this informs, obviously, some of his political opinions, which we'll get to in a little bit. Interestingly, and I did not know this about Thomas Paine, he was very interested in science. Uh, historians talk about him purchasing scientific equipment when he's living in England, and he attends some lectures by some scientists, specifically Newtonian scientists uh, in England, and this sort of informs his opinions on uh, Enlightenment-era thinking, etc., which he'll pick up later in some of his works. Um, and interestingly, through his interest in science, he meets Benjamin Franklin in England. So Franklin's on a trip uh, in London, and he ends up getting connected to Thomas Paine through their common interest of science. So I didn't know that Thomas Paine was interested in science at all, and it'll actually play a role later on as well. But it's through this interest of science that he actually meets uh, Benjamin Franklin. Well, and all these life experiences are going to formulate like these these like kind of revolutionary ideas for his time. Again, and we'll get to it. They're so revolutionary that he's he's going to be actually eventually on the outs with the other architects of of the United States because he's he's almost too radical, right? I mean, everything from labor organizing, um, in a way, for the tax collectors to this idea in Newtonian science, and, and Franklin was a little bit more radical himself as well. But he's he's going to be on the outs too. So. Something to think about how these life experiences are going to inform the man Thomas Paine actually becomes when he shows up in the United States and why that is going to make him so much more radical than all of the other thinkers here. Yeah, 100%. Um, so when he meets Franklin, Franklin suggested that he visits America. And 
his life's kind of in shambles, honestly, at this point. After separating from his wife, he doesn't really have anything to do, so he actually does. Uh, so he moves to America in 1774 at the age of 37. Interestingly, just a tidbit of trivia, the trip across the ocean destroys him physically, and they say he was even unable to walk off of the ship. So uh, Benjamin Franklin actually sent a physician to get him off of the boat because he couldn't even walk. Um, then he recovers, and through this recommendation of Benjamin Franklin, he secures a position at as the editor of a new journal titled The Pennsylvania Magazine. Um, they say that he had in his pocket, his coat pocket, a letter of recommendation written by Benjamin Franklin, and that's all that was needed because Franklin was so influential to secure him this position as the editor. Um, I also want to explain just briefly, uh, at the time when he lands in Philadelphia, he lands specifically, if you care about the date, November 30th, 1774. We have to understand that Philadelphia is basically the capital of the Americas at this point, it has a population of 30,000. It's the social, scientific, and economic center. Um, and interestingly, I found this fact as I was doing research. Its port processed more tonnage than any other in the British Empire except for London and Sussex. So it's a huge economic uh, powerhouse in the British Empire at the time. So that's what Thomas Paine is basically walking into. Um, so he gets this job straight away as the editor of this new magazine, essentially. Um, and it's at this time... Uh, right off the bat that he writes uh, his second political pamphlet titled African Slavery in America. And uh, we're not going to go into detail on this one, but suffice to say, he basically shreds the fact that there is slavery in the United States, and it's appalling, and he basically can't understand how Christians can support uh, this institution, which we've already deconstructed in previous episodes. But this is what makes him so radical, and this is why some of the other architects of the country, especially, of course, people he's going to be running into from Virginia, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, and so on and so forth, who are uh, world-renowned slaveholders and awful to their slaves, are, are going to find him so distasteful. They're no they're going to need his rhetoric that we're going to be talking about here in a minute, but this is why they didn't get along, is Thomas Paine is, again, he's a much more radical revolutionary thinker, and I'm going to be blunt, the other architects of the country, most of them are just not. They're not. They're not radical. They're not revolutionary. They're not seeing the social inequities that Thomas Paine is seeing because of his life experiences. And then again, the how offensive the even the institution of slavery is to his senses coming, again, fresh from England, where yes, slavery was still a thing in England, but but it was different, right? It's not, he's not experiencing like the actual slave life in England, right? Most of the slaves that the English used were in their colonies. It very, not nearly as many made it back to London. So um, he's going to find it wildly offensive. And in turn, the other architects of the country are going to find him wildly offensive for him calling them out on their bullshit and their hypocrisies. Also think back to what I said about his father being a Quaker. If you know anything about the Quaker religion, they're uh, not about slavery. So well, and we uh, talked about them a little bit with the middle yeah. colonies and stuff and, and their different dealings with indigenous people as well. Yeah. It's hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know if you said Adams or not, but I don't think did Adams own slaves? I think he was the one that didn't. I mean, Franklin didn't have slaves either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and some of the other younger, the next generation that we'll be talking about in future episodes, the Hamiltons and the Madisons, though though they were big kind of supporters of the industry, yeah. but not necessarily like large-stake slaveholders like the Washingtons and Jeffersons. Plus, most of them were like northerners at this point, at that point, right? Okay. So, where do we leave off? Gets the position, African slavery in America, right. Uh, yeah. So, as Jared said... We wouldn't call it like abolitionism yet, probably, but Thomas Paine was one of the first to publicly start saying these things. He wasn't the first. People were saying this already. In fact, we've talked about it already in previous episodes. 
But he comes straight from England and just straight away, this is the first thing he starts uh, essentially shitting on, uh, starts talking about. Uh, interestingly, it also says a few weeks after this publication, um, it gets published in March of 1775. Uh, in April of 1775, the first anti-slavery society in America was formed in Philadelphia and Paine was a founding member. So that just gives you an idea of how he felt about this. Uh, through his position as the editor of this uh, magazine, in 1775, he comes into contact and becomes friends with a local physician named Benjamin Rush. And if you know anything about the uh, revolutionary period in America, Benjamin Rush is hugely influential as well. Uh, in fact, he's good close friends with John Adams and other congressmen. And uh, they're already having private conversations about independence at this point. And so Payne gets introduced into all of these men uh, and thrust right into this conversation uh, as a result of his role and meeting uh, Benjamin Rush. So this sort of uh, gives us an idea of Payne's coming to America and the political milieu that he is kind of inserted in. And uh, he it re really just goes from there. So it leads us up to uh, obviously his most famous writing which is Common Sense. And Jared's going to guide us through that one. It's his most famous writing here, for sure, um, defending the rights of man and citizen in, the, in France, which you'll kind of be talking about when we get through this, is also one of his more famous writings as well, uh, when eventually, like I said, his ideas are so radical, even after the War for Independence, that he ends up going to France for, a again, an exponentially more radical revolutionary process that's going on there. Um, anyway, uh, Common Sense uh, ends up being his most popular work here, and it is arguably one of the most important documents, if not the most important, I would argue that it is, in framing the independence-minded ethic of, uh, of the colonists. And it was the first one that really, uh, in my opinion, tried to approach the topic from both a, well, from all three that we learn in our English classes from using ethos, logos, and pathos, but really approaching it for the common people, why they should be supporting this cause. I mean, again, there is debate whether or not the early parts of the war for independence and the build-up were elitist-led and manipulated, or if it was actually more, more again, a, a, a grassroots movement. We definitely tend to side with the idea that it is the elites kind of manipulating the unwashed masses to uh, support this cause because the elites were the ones that were most adversely being affected by the British. Um, but Thomas Paine's common sense is going to take it down to the common level. And again, at this point, by the time uh, Thomas Paine's writing... Uh, the Second Continental Congress has already met, which we'll come back to in a future episode, and they're deciding upon war and peace. Thomas Jefferson's drawn up a very famous document called the Declaration on Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. It would get you, get a much better title in a, in a later draft. Um, but all this is already taking place, and they're actually struggling to fill out the ranks of the army. The militias are all on board, but filling out the actual Continental Army is becoming difficult. So Thomas Paine's work is going to be wildly important to try and basically recruit, get some of these quote-unquote unwashed masses to join the colonial cause. So uh, the, pamphlet, the pamphlet itself really started making its rounds by January of 1776. It actually started as a series of letters and uh, then became something else. He basically compiled these letters into what would become this very famous pamphlet. And we've already talked about how important pamphleteering was for the colonial cause in, in the prior episodes. So um, it ends up just being another one, but not just another one. Um, over 100,000 copies were sold in just a few weeks. So Nick was talking about one of his famous publications back in London regarding um, uh, labor movement for excise tax collectors, and it was like 4,000 were sold. 
I'm going to repeat this number again. Over 100,000 copies of Common Sense were sold in just a few weeks. Half a million by the end of the year, which was 1776. Proportionally speaking, it is still the best-selling publication in United States history. Again, proportional to the population at the time. No other publication has sold as much as Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Um, and and I, oddly enough, or sadly enough, due to various corrupt agreements he had with his publishers by the names of Bell and Bradford, he actually never made a dime on this most famous publish, publish, uh, well, on his most famous work uh, of his lifetime. And I actually read, there was a couple of historians that I read that said the little that he did make from the publication, he donated it all to the Continental Army, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the guy really believed in his causes. Um, okay, so I'm going to go through some of Common Sense. We're not going to you know read it verbatim. It's way too long for that. Um, it's not super long for like a, a sit-down read for an individual, but it's way too long for a podcast here, uh, and you guys would probably all fall asleep. But I'm going to go through some highlights that I think are very interesting to me. Um, and the ones that I think are most interesting usually uh, are his engagement with pathos, because I think that's what actually makes social movement work, is the emotional appeals. Uh, Logos is okay for social movement, even ethos to an extent, but it is pathos. People make choices, decisions emotionally. We're not necessarily rational creatures, and I think Thomas Paine actually knows that. He's actually a very smart man. He's actually going to say some intentionally, in my opinion, very unsmart things here. Let's just call them dumb things here. Wildly problematic things, historically speaking, religiously speaking. He's going to say that not because he actually believes them, but because he knows that what that those are the types of things that will motivate his audience into action. And that's, again, in my opinion, showing how shrewd he was as a rhetorician. So um, without further ado, let's let's kind of jump in right here with his introduction to, of course, common sense. Some of you have probably heard this. He starts with saying, perhaps the sentiments contained in the following pages are not yet sufficiently fashionable to procure them general favor. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. But tumult soon subsides, and time makes more converts than reason. I like that introduction right there, uh, mainly because what he's talking about is this idea that we we get in habits. We just assume traditional things, things are just the way they are, and there's not much we can do about them just because it's tradition. Even if we know these things are wrong, which also informs his views on slavery, just because it's tradition or custom or we're economically tied to them or whatever it is, that does not actually make them correct. And that we must always be striving to call these things out and challenge these systems or traditions or ways that we do things. And I think it's actually a very good introduction. In this case, he's talking specifically about the tradition of being a colony. So I think that's actually wildly important. Um, he then jumps right in. His first chapter, and it is actually my favorite. For other historians and other people that have studied this, it's, it's usually they usually fly through this one and, and get into the meat. Uh, of some of the other chapters, but for me, it's actually the opposite. I spend most of my time in chapter one because, again, I think it's the the deprecation of the present, the deprecation of history, and this these emotional appeals that are actually the most important. And I think he feels that way too. That's why he put them towards the beginning. The logical appeals that, you know, England's a small island and it shouldn't rule over an entire continent and all that other stuff that most people are familiar with, those are all really good arguments. I'm not going to say they're not, but I just don't see them as appealing as these emotional parts at the beginning. So the first thing he starts to talk about is the origin and design of government in general with the concise remarks on the English Constitution. Another key point here that is often lost, probably not on our listeners, but the average American citizen, and we've already brought it up once, is that England already had a constitution. 
um, which is interesting. And much of the United States Constitution that comes later is derived or driven from the English Constitution. So that's important for us to acknowledge here. Anyway, he gets started here by saying, some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them. Whereas they are not only different, but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, in its worst state, an intolerable one. What do you think of that? Yeah, this is a super famous quote that... uh I think we might have even used it in the Revolution and Ideology series when we were talking about the states, right? When he talks about how governments are a necessary evil, essentially. Yeah, he says, Government like a dress is the badge of lost innocence. The palaces of kings are built on the ruins of the bowers of paradise. It's this idea that, and it's actually important that he says this, is this idea that government is a quote-unquote necessary evil and that's fine what it's actually doing is setting the stage for the potential for a new government so he's not necessarily like an anarchist he is a supporter of the state but it is also uh guiding the ideology that that state should be inherently limited and i think that's actually important that he's already prepping his audience for this idea um and again it's not necessarily a radical idea people i mean you know thomas Paine's, you know a century after Locke and so on so it's not a radical idea but it is an idea that's wildly important as nick already told us his he's already well grounded in enlightenment era ideals so we can already see that revealing itself here in the introduction um he also kind of dabbles a little bit in this idea of the social contract of of jj rousseau here where he's talking about uh how man must find it necessary to surrender up part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest so it's not complete autonomy that thomas paine is seeking um which may make him a little less radical than nick or myself might appreciate but he's certainly radical for his time this idea of giving up just a little bit of what you have for the protection of the rest alludes to the idea of social contract theory, again, already a very important and prominent uh, Enlightenment-era ideal that is circulating in the Western world at the time. He then goes on further, and again, I'm reading excerpts, not necessarily going all the way through every part of Common Sense, this first chapter, but I'm picking out these important parts. Um, And he goes on further to say that, thus necessity, like a gravitating power, would soon form our newly arrived immigrants into society. He says the reciprocal blessings of which would supersede and render the obligations of law and government unnecessary, while the remaining perfectly just to each other. But as nothing but heaven is impregnable device, it will unavoidably happen, that in proportion as they surmount the first difficulties of emigration, which bound them together in a common cause, they will begin to relax in their duty and attachment to each other, and this remissness will point out the necessity of establishing some form of government to supply the defect of moral virtue. This is an important quote because he's kind of going back through like the history or possibility of living in a society without law or without state, and he's arguing essentially that these limitations are necessary because of uh, population growth and new people showing up and different forms of vice, which again, vice is something that a lot of uh, political or theoretical or philosophical writers like attach a lot of import to that humans just have or assume that we have these natural vices that must somehow be tempered in some sort of way and and thomas paine's essentially arguing much the same thing here um which is interesting he then goes on further to denigrate the notion of absolute governments which is interesting because 
England was not an absolute government during his time. It was a constitutional monarchy, and I'm going to give more more credence to this idea of a constitutional monarchy in just a second, but absolute governments will inform his ideals about a place that he spends a lot of time after the United States, France, which was indeed an absolute government before its revolution beginning in 1789. But he is. He's going to critique this idea of the absolute government. Absolute governments though the disgrace of human nature have this advantage with them, that they are simple. If the people suffer, they know the head from which their suffering springs, know likewise the remedy, and are not bewildered by a variety of causes and cures. So the first thing he says is absolute governments suck, but, but, there's a, there's a quick but here. If they suck, we actually know how to fix them relatively quickly because everything comes usually in the form of one absolute monarch or his council or his cabinet or his nobleman or whatever. But it's super simple to try and figure out where uh, where things are breaking down. He argues, however, since England has a constitution that resembles the United, what would become the United States Constitution, I, this cannot be lost on, on our listeners here, that it is actually uh, problematic because it's so complicated, we don't know how to fix issues. And that's the English Constitution. He says, but the Constitution of England is so exceedingly complex that the nation may suffer for years together without being able to discover in which part the fault lies. Some will say in one and some in another, and every political physician will advise a different medicine. Again, this is a great irony that he is already talking about a constitution in England that looks an awful lot like what would become the United States Constitution. It's too complex to ever really get anything accomplished. And he's already arguing that in common sense before there's even a constitution here in the United States. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about then what becomes the United States Constitution and the fact that he's already, I guess, sort of a fortune teller of he knows what's going to happen. Like he knows that the Constitution is already too complex in England to really get anything done. And like you said, just before he had talked about there are so many faults with like a monarchy but it's so easy to fix things because it's one person. You're dealing with one person. We talk about even in social movement theory how overthrowing a dictator is super easy compared to other types of revolution because you have one target and that's it. You know? Right. And this constitution kind of like it is. It, it, it diffuses power into like kind of this oligarchical format. It's Again, it's hard to target. It's a moving target and it's all over the place and things break down because of the bloated bureaucracy that comes from it. Uh, to outline that bureaucracy, Thomas Paine goes on to say this uh, and it's actually one of my favorite quotes in the entire document because it, it's not just critiquing England's constitution but it, uh, it it's actually a very firm critique of what becomes the United States Constitution. And again, I don't know if he's a fortune teller or seeing things in the future. He's probably not, but it's, it's actually kind of interesting and it actually shows and we're going to do an episode on this in the future how unrevolutionary the american war for independence is it is actually not very revolutionary at all by because they straight up jack a whole bunch of institutions from england um, but this is an example right here that Thomas Paine outlines for us. He says, To say the Constitution of England is a union of three powers reciprocally checking each other is farcical. Either the words have no meaning or they are flat contradictions. Right off the bat, we see that England already had a constitution separating three different powers that are meant to check and balance each other. Again, our listeners are probably aware of this, but we love to teach this in classrooms because most Americans are completely unaware of this fact, that there was already a separation of powers that existed in England and that we're checking and balancing each other. America did not invent that. Um, and, and the fact that we think we did is, again, shows our obscene arrogance. Um, anyway, he goes on to say that the commons is a check upon the king, and it presupposes two things. 
First, that the king is not to be trusted without being looked after, or in other words, that a thirst for absolute power is the natural disease of monarchy. And secondly, that the commons, by being appointed for that purpose, are either wiser or more worthy of confidence than the crown. But, as the same constitution which gives the commons a power to check the king by withholding the supplies, gives afterwards the king a power to check the commons by empowering him to reject their other bills, it again supposes the king is wiser than those whom it is already supposed to be wiser than him. A mere absurdity. Now, if you had a problem kind of following that the way he wrote it, that's okay. I think he wrote it that way intentionally to show how, and as he calls it, absurd it is, how complex it is. Why would you have these powers reciprocally checking and balancing each other if ultimately the king at the very end of the day can still, we would use the term veto now in modern American um, politics, but yeah, use this power to overrule, in this case, the House of Lords and the House of Commons and so on and so forth. What's the point? of all this like is it's it's all an exercise in futility and all it does is it slow de- slows down decision making and problem solving what are your thoughts there no yeah i think i love how you mentioned his use of rhetoric there sort of the fact that he describes it in a way that's confusing because it is confusing and like he says it's a complete absurdity it makes no sense the, the whole thing is ridiculous and the way that he describes it clearly you know, who's checking who and who has the ultimate power. And like the checks and balances are basically just window dressing. I mean, really. It is. It is. And it's now no, it's, it's going to become no secret as to why the United States would actually adopt so much of the English constitution moving forward is because uh, it is intent. It is intentionally very difficult to actually make any lasting change especially for the people. And that's actually the point of a constitution. It, it, it's cute that we have these 10 rights that we're going to talk about in a future episode as well to protect our, our, our liberties, so to speak. But the constitution itself, and because of the way it's framed with this reciprocally checking and balancing each other, makes it very difficult for anything to happen very quickly, um, which is wildly problematic for uh, people that want to make change. So anyway, moving on, he goes deeper into the actual history of kingship. And this is where we get into the debate of did Thomas Paine actually believe these things or was he just appealing to the wildly, I don't know what the word is, um, the wildly, I don't want to use the term racist here, but let's say xenophobic ideals of his audience. And when I say that, he's actually going to be talking about different religions or different backgrounds and critiquing them because he knows his audience um, actually feels these this way about these other religions, and he's then going to blame these religions for the invention of kings. This is an appeal that's very important because, again, if he knows his audience feels this way about these quote-unquote others— uh, these others being Jews or Catholics or even Muslims. Um, and then he blames them for the manufacture of kings while trying to rile his audience up into fighting a king. He's actually making these very clear appeals. Does that make sense? Okay. So he says, male and female are the distinctions of nature, good and bad the distinctions of heaven. But how a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into, and whether they are the means of happiness or of a misery to mankind. And again, here he's talking about the hereditary right to rule. Now, absolute monarchies have a hereditary right, and so does the constitutional monarchy. So even though the constitutional monarchy can be checked and balanced by parliament, um, in both houses, the king himself is still, again, that is a hereditary right to rule. So he's going to call that into question. And he says, when you go through the history of it, 
Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens. Again, these are his words, not mine. From whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous uh, invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to a worm who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. I love that quote. First and foremost, who's he blaming government by kings on? Again, you have to keep in mind his audience is considering should we fight a government run by a king? Well, of course you should if government by kings was invented by who? Jews. Well, heathens and then copied by Jews. Mm -hmm. And we already know his audience, and I'm going to flat out say it, is wildly anti-Semitic. They were not fans of Jews, uh, whether we're talking about England or whether we're talking about the colonies here. In fact, dating back to the Navigation Acts of the 1650s, they actually barred Jews from achieving full citizenship and being able to engage in the mercantilist economy. Um, so yes, he's appealing to their the othering of Jews. In, in blaming them for kingship. He actually doubles down on this by saying later in this passage, monarchy is ranked in scripture as one of the sins of the Jews, for which a curse in reserve is denounced against them. The history of that transaction is worth attending to. Now, I'm not going to go through everything he wrote there, but he basically takes a, he basically does a, a mashup of scripture here, of Old Testament scripture, and goes through the various kings, uh, the Sauls and the Davids and the Solomons, and how they all came into being and the corruption of their rule to discuss why Jews should be blamed for kingship. Um, and again, this is an appeal to his audience. Now, is Thomas Paine himself anti-Semitic? I'd like to think probably not based on his feelings on other oppressed peoples around the world at the time. Again, slaves. Uh, he has a lot to say, of course, about the oppression of women as well, which Nick may or may not touch upon in the future. Um, but I don't, to the best of my knowledge, believe that he was. I think the important part here is he knows his audiences, and that's why he's willing to kind of stoop to this level to blame, again, Jews for the creation of kings and knowing that his population feels a certain way about them. And if they feel a, cer a certain way about the Jewish population, then they should feel a certain way about kings. So he's appealing perhaps to loyalists here, um, whoever, to try and get them on board with fighting the king. And appealing to their religious sensibilities. As we've already talked in prior episodes, much of New England is wildly religious. Wildly religious. So, um, or at least pretends to be. He then um, lets the Jews off the hook and picks on another group of people that he knows a lot of his audience um, finds um, reprehensible. And that is the Catholic community. Now, there are Catholics clearly in the colonies, lots of them, especially in the colony of Maryland. We know that. But he is trying to reach the, the widest audience, and most of his audience is some sort of Protestant denomination. So he's going to pick on uh, the Catholic Church here a little bit by also uh, uh, associating them with kingship. So this is what he has to say. And a man hath good reason to believe that there is as much kingcraft as priestcraft in withholding the scripture from the public in popish countries. For monarchy in every instance is the popery of government, not popery that you like smell in your bathroom or whatever, like popery as in the pope, right? Um, why even bother with this, this, this little add-in, like this extra jab at the Catholic Church? What's the point of this? Like, come on, Thomas, why don't you just get to the logical arguments about why it doesn't make sense for this tiny-ass island to rule over a big continent full of beautiful resources and shit? Like, why waste time with this, this Jewish or Catholic denigration? 
because he knows the religious beliefs of his audience in the colonies at the time. And they, by relating kingship to Catholicism, he's attaching it to something that he knows that they hate. Are we saying that Americans are easily motivated by their wild xenophobia to do things? Weird. Uh, yeah. Weird. That's a shock. Like, it's it's all the way back here in 1776 um, that, again, through xenophobia, fear of the other, uh, manufacturing a narrative, a false historical narrative of, of, in this case, both the Jews and the Catholics, that you can get people um, to engage in violence. I did not know that was possible. I thought we were completely, like, logical here. Weird. So weird. Anyway, um, one of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary right in kings is that nature disapproves of it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. It's one of like, like his mic drop lines right there, right? Like it's so good. Uh, he, he lays off religion for just a second and comes into nature because he's an Enlightenment era thinker and nature's becoming a thing um, for them. And uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. He turns he turns it in. He t- he gives mankind an ass for a lion. That's pretty good. Um, this is where Thomas I think goes a little bit off the rails. And as much as I, I enjoy Thomas Paine, I really do. We really are Thomas Paine fans here because we know, or at least we want to assume, he is not anti-Catholic or anti-Jewish. He's just using this rhetoric because his audience is. Um, and he is manipulating them. But this is where we see him go off the rails a little bit, where he actually then picks on Islam for just a second. And I'm not saying that's going off the rails in terms of what his discourse was, but I think, in, and I'm maybe I'm out of line here, but I think he's now overestimating the education of his audience. Like, they even know what Islam is in 1776 uh, America, colonial America. I don't think they did. But since he had only been here since 1774, and England had direct relations with, like, the Ottoman Empire and stuff, he clearly was aware of these, this other group of quote-unquote others. And so the fact that he throws a jab at them as well in a in an aim to appeal to his audience, like, look, this other religion you also don't agree with, they're also tied to kingcraft as well, I think is like, again, it's kind of overestimating the education of his audience. So I think it's actually kind of funny. That's why I like to read this one. He goes on to say that, again, kingship is meant to, and that's me, those are my words, now his words, meant to trump up some superstitious tale conveniently timed, Muhammad-like, to cram hereditary right down the throats of the vulgar. Again, what do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why just, we've, we, we went through a deep history of, of, uh, well, a relatively deep history compared to that of Judaism and its role, uh, in kingcraft. And then we take a jab at the Pope and Catholicism. And now here we go. Let's, let's take a, take a, a jab at the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. For what reason? Like, why? Yeah, they, yeah, it doesn't even, but I mean, I get, it's just kind of funny that, like, again, they, they, we're like trying to get into the mind of Thomas Paine at this moment in time. And like, he's, he really is. Like, these are clearly emotional appeals. And that's why they're the first two chapters. Again, I already mentioned it. Historians, uh, in rhetoricians focus on the, on the second two chapters, three and four, because they're more logos appeal. But no, even Thomas Paine knows that logos is not how you move the unwashed masses. It's not how you move idiots. You move them with this emotional shit. So that's why he concentrates on this at the beginning. And let's be honest, like, even though it sold hundreds of thousands of copies, like, how many people read past the first two chapters? Let's be yeah. real. Like, our students don't read shit for a class. Like, you yeah. know I mean? And the fact that we still glorify the next two chapters, like, is, it's kind of weird to me, but whatever. Okay, moving on. He then is done picking on religion. He then picks on the, uh, what, he, what we would say is the, um, I don't know, corrupted hereditary line of the British monarchy itself. 
So he then, again, manufactures a history, an ethically constitutive story about the English crown. And he dates it back to, he actually skips, you know, the Alfred, the Greats, and so on and so forth. And he picks it up with the uh, Battle of Hastings in 1066. And he has to say that England, since the conquest, hath known some few good monarchs, but groaned beneath a much larger number of bad ones. Yet no man in his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. He's a French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry rascally original. I love it. I love it. That's not obviously the entire British crown and the history of the British crown, but he picks up there because that's a very important turning point in English history, right? This guy is a Norman. He's not even really French, but Normandy's in France, so he's able to, like, again, manipulate the language here, and we know how the English feel about the French. It's not super fond. So the fact that they potentially have some French blood on their own throne, he's calling them out for their 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 impurity right there. Um, and their... The idea that William the Conqueror also, as a colonizer, suppressed his co- his colonial subjects through things like the Domesday Book and stuff like that, then yeah, like that 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 line of inquiry would appeal to his audience. Like, hey, yeah, if they're not even pure in their own throne in their own line, why should we have to listen to this guy, hereditary right, this King George the Third, right? If this is the line he comes from, and they already have this rich history of being assholes to their colonists. Oh, absolutely. We should probably revolt. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I love it. He's saying basically delegitimizing the British monarchy by saying your king's not even British, really. Like you lost that with the conqueror. And it's, yeah. And he then goes further into the history and calls out some more of the other kings for their problematic rule. Um, but we're going to skip ahead now. But again, I, before we skip fully ahead, for the third time, I'm going to emphasize this. Those first two chapters focused on emotional appeal. We're going to move a little bit further uh, into more Logos appeal, but there's one more appeal to emotion here at the beginning of chapter three. It's one of my, my favorite lines here because of the hyperbole in it. It's just absolutely ridiculous. He says, the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a country, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest and will be more or less affected even to the end of time by the proceedings now. So again, whether or not he really believed this, we may never know. But the fact that he's writing this to his audience, basically saying, like, this is the most important thing that will probably ever happen. Mm-hmm. Like hyperbole much? Like yeah. again, it's it's absolutely obscene. But we can see how that line of thinking even affects American citizens to this day. United States citizens, oh, it's the best country in the world, and oh my god, everything's so amazing, and we've got everything correct. We've been around for two hundred years. Never mind these civilizations that have been around for thousands. We got it all down pat. Like it's absolutely obscene. Yeah. Like the myopia. I mean, Winthrop City on the Hill is like here. Like oh my god, this is such bullshit. Again, I don't even know that he really believed it, but he knows what his audience wants to hear. And this is what he's telling them. You're going to do something that everybody will remember forever. He then goes on to try and address the various excuses that he had heard, especially from like loyalists. He says, I have heard it asserted by some that as, Amer- that as America hath flourished under her former connection with Great Britain, that the same connection is necessary towards her future happiness and will always have the same effect. And even I, oddly enough, in our prior episode, admitted, I said something similar. I'm like, man, these people already have the highest standard of living in the entire British Empire. What the hell are they whining about? I even said the same thing. So let's see what Thomas has to say to me here. 
He says, but even this is admitting more than is true, for I answer roundly that America would have flourished as much and probably much more had no European power had anything to do with her. Hold on, Thomas. What the hell does that even mean? What do you think it means, Nick? I think he's saying that... Like, he's not talking about... There's no way he's talking about Native Americans. No. I think he's talking about the colonists and saying, essentially, even though you have the highest standard of living, imagine what you could have had if you hadn't been under the thumb of the British the entire time. But then he's clearly ignoring that it is because of the British that the colonists are even here. Yeah, clearly. I mean, even dating back recently, it's the British that won the French and Indian War for them. It's the British that supplied them with, like, goods and, like, kept them protected. Like, why is he willingly not admitting any of those things? They, the the no only one, reason the colonists are flooring is because of the British. No one wants to hear that. So it's okay to lie to your audience to get them to perform in actions and build up this idea of patriotism, which is, again, it's a feeling. It's not a fact. Okay. So even the appeals that have been sold to us, as we're in Chapter 3 now, as Logos, are not as much Logos-oriented as we like to think. Interesting. Um, others, other loyalists will say, and this is him now quoting loyalist, but she has protected us, say some, that she hath engrossed us in true and defended the continent at our expense, as well as her own, is admitted, and she would have defended Turkey from the same motive, viz, the sake of trade and dominion. So this is what he's saying, and it's what I actually just said, but it is the British that keep them safe and protected. Thomas Paine responds by saying, well, yeah, they'd protect anywhere that they were making wealth on, so they don't care about you, they just care about your wealth. Actually, that's probably true. But is that a problem? I don't know. What do you think? For the colonists, maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. He goes on to find another excuse. But Britain is the parent country, say some. Then the more shame upon her conduct. Even brutes do not devour their young, nor savages make war upon their families. Okay. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it makes something that, that if you are the parent country, you should be a better caretaker of your people. And I guess that makes sense. In this extensive quarter of the globe, we must we forget the narrow limits of 360 miles, the extent of England, and carry our friendship on a larger scale. We claim brotherhood with every European Christian and triumph in the generosity of the sentiment. Now he's making these appeals to like reach out to this idea of a Christian sentiment um, to all of the other, again, Christian European countries. Why would you make this appeal? Like, what are we doing here? Like, he knows his readers are mostly going to be these colonists. There's not going to be somebody in whatever, the backwoods of like uh, the whole, well, it technically was still called the Holy Roman Empire, but it's not much of that, right? In Germany or whatever, what would become Germany? That's going to read this and be like, oh yeah, I get what the Americans are doing there. I'm totally on board because we're all Christians. Like, what the hell? is he doing here i think he's trying to convince the colonists that it's a much bigger picture and that there's solidarity out there with others even if the others are never going to read this or have any idea what's going on um he goes on further in this passage to say and this is flat out honesty and i love it our plan is commerce and that well attended to will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of, go- barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. This is actually perfect, because he is now appealing to why most of these colonists are here, and they're already high standard of living. These people are not looking for, like like the liberty and freedom and equality of like all humans based on like human rights. These guys are looking for liberty and freedom to make money. Like that's their goal. They are not humanitarians. They are business people and um, their ethics and their morals are attached to this. And this is what he's really speaking to. Now we know personally that Thomas Paine's ethics are much bigger than this. 
Uh, again, he'd already written about how slavery was wildly problematic two years prior to this. We know where his real morals and ethics are on this, but he knows, and I'm going to flat out say this, that much of his audience, as far as ethics and morals, are relatively, as far as human rights, bankrupt. They don't give a fuck. They're interested in making money, and this is his appeal to them. Our business is commerce, and the way this is going to work for us and why Europe is going to support us is because they need us to also make money. And this commerce is going to be mutually beneficial, and this is why it's going to work. And I mean, we don't look, need England. England needs us, right? Like and by that. looking back, he's 100% correct. He actually is correct. With hindsight, I don't we like know the that, appeal, yeah. but it's a correct appeal. It is a correct appeal. Like that's it, He's absolutely 100% correct. Um, so uh, again, this one works. He goes on to further say, even the distance at which the Almighty hath placed England and America is a strong and natural proof that the authority of one over the other was never the design of heaven. That's an appeal I've already referenced a couple of times. Again, like the distance, it just doesn't make sense for this tiny island to rule over this this large uh, continent from so far away that actually has all of these resources. England needs America more than America needs England is what he's essentially saying. So, okay. Um, he goes on to say, interested men who are not to be trusted... I'm sorry. Let me preface this quote. He's talking about who the loyalists are. He's trying to call out who a loyalist is. He says they are interested men who are not to be trusted. They are weak men who can't see, prejudiced men who will not see, and a certain set of moderate men who think better of the European world than it deserves. And this last class, by an ill-judged deliberation, will be the cause of more calamities to this continent than all the other three. And in this case, I actually would also agree with him. Like this appeal, these are who these people are, and there's no doubting that European loyalists um, are part of the main problems that will wreak havoc across the continent. What he is actually, there's a cognitive dissonance here though as well, is that you could say the same thing about the colonists because they're actually just copying the same ideology of those Europeans. Again, this is not a revolutionary war. We will not call it that in this podcast. We call it the war for independence, and we've been very careful to call it that. They are not changing. They are not revolutionizing ideology. They are not revolutionizing systems of governance. They're actually not doing any of that. None of that changes. Nothing changes. Some titles change. Ah, king, president, congress, parliament, whatever. But the society is still structured much the same way. Thomas Paine actually hoped for war, and that's why he ends up in France after this. Um, he then uh, calls people out. He calls out the loyalists or anybody that is maybe on the fence and trying to basically get them into action. And, and this is where he gets completely out of hand, but it's actually kind of funny to me. He says, Hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then you are not a judge of those who have. But if you have and can still shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy the name of husband, father, friend, or lover, and whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a psychophant. <laughs> are you kidding me, Thomas? Again, I really actually like Thomas Paine. I, he's one of the few people we're going to talk about like from this, the architects that I, that I actually like because I know what he's doing here. He's, this is just rhetoric. He is just moving an audience. He is exponentially smarter than them, and he knows that, and he is trying to appeal to them. If we really break this down when he's asking, hath your house been burnt? Well, as you will all recall from the prior episode, yeah, some houses were burnt. British houses, like Andrew Oliver's or Thomas Hutchinson's. They were the ones committing these acts, right? Anyway, 
Ebenezer Richardson, his wife was struck by rocks, right, from these sons of liberty. It's absolutely incredible. But anyway, this is what he's talking about. He's definitely trying to appeal to them. He's trying to appeal to them. Um, anyway, these appeals go on further and further throughout both chapters three and four. Um, but as I think those, both of those chapters have already been, um, kind of well deconstructed in hopefully a lot of our listeners background, maybe not all of them. Um, I'm going to kind of, uh, slow down a little bit here on deconstructing common sense and just try and get, uh, Nick's, um, impression of what he was able to accomplish rhetorically in, in this this grandiose work again the best selling publication in United States history based on proportional sales um what are your thoughts here again and again maybe i shouldn't assume that 3 and 4 have already been gone through by in in other people's research but i am i am so we can kind of keep moving through this episode yeah i think that one of the most compelling things about it was that he intentionally and he talks about this extensively makes use of common language and he he knows exactly who his audience is. He's writing it to the common people. And this actually gets him a lot of critique from some of his political foes, John Adams being one. Uh, John Adams basically hates pain and common sense because he, he's, he's basically upset. And he says, I don't have the quote in front of me, but something to the extent of, there's nothing special about this. I, it's just reiterating arguments that I've been saying in Congress for months. Um, and so it's kind of funny, but the fact that the publication is so successful it just is evidence that Payne knew exactly who his audience was and he put it in plain language for everyone to be able to digest and i think it's no it's sort of no mystery that the most popular political publications of throughout history are the ones that put very complicated ideas into uh common language for uh, the average person to understand. The Communist Manifesto comes to mind, uh, thinking about all of Marx's, some of them incredibly complex philosophical writings. That one, him and Engels intentionally wrote for commoners to be able to understand, and obviously it becomes widely read and still is to this day. Um, common Sense, Payne's doing the exact same thing. He's taking the, uh, I mean, complex ideas of governments, etc. And he's crafting this document to specifically uh, spark people into action and to motivate their ideologies and change the way that they think. Yeah, I mean, it, and it is, I mean, Payne knew what he was doing. He was shrewd. Uh, the more intellectual, higher class, like John Adams, we're going to pick on multiple times in this podcast now moving forward. And that's kind of weird to pick on him because of those other architects, he's actually one of the more like low key, like I said, wasn't super into like uh, oppression and subjugation of others and, uh, as much as the others. But regardless, we're still going to pick on him right here for calling out Thomas Paine. I would say maybe, I, I mean, low key, low key jealousy. I don't know. No, <laughs> I 100% think he says he calls it, yeah. he calls Paine's common sense a disastrous meteor, a star of disaster. Um, poor, short-sighted, crapulous mass. This is how John Adams is describing common sense. He says, I'm, I, I am willing, you should call this age of frivolity as you do, um, and would not object if you had named it the age of folly, vice, frenzy, brutality, Damon's, Bonaparte, Tom Paine, or the age of burning brand from the bottomless pit, or anything but the age of reason. I know not whether any man in the world has had more influence on its inhabitants or affairs for the last 30 years than Thomas Paine. There can be no severer satyr on the on the uh, on the age. 
for such a mongrel between pig and puppy begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf, never before in any age of the world has suffered by the poltroonery pol pol uh, of mankind to run through such a career of mischief. Call it then the age of pain. Oh my god, like that's that's John Adams just losing his absolute shit. I actually have Thomas another Payne. quote here that I think is yeah. funny because it's interesting. <laughs> he publicly later on, like the quote Jared just read shits all over pain and common sense but in the beginning he has nothing but respect for it because he doesn't know who's written it uh because pain publishes this anonymously in the beginning so this is a in it, they're going talking about who has written this um some people thought that it was uh benjamin franklin and then others thought that it was john adams and uh, this is a quote from historian Jill Lepore, who we'll actually talk about in a second. I have some other quotes from her about this, but she says, More miffed than flattered, Adams admitted to his wife Abigail, I could not have written anything so manly and striking a style. Who then, Adams found out, his name is Payne. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, and see, that's the problem. Like Nick said, he wrote this anonymously at first, and it just it's straight fire. Everybody's on board. But when they find out it's Thomas Paine, and then when Thomas Paine begins to talk with them and write with them and call them out on their hypocrisies and their bullshit and asks for them to all become a little bit more radical, again, maybe even abolishing slavery, maybe giving some rights to women. Thomas Paine believed in all these things because we know he brought those ideas over to France as well. But that's when he starts being an enemy of the Adamses and the Jeffersons. And I actually don't know if he had beef with George Washington straight up. I don't know about that one. But he does I, later on. I'll talk but, about But that. I know Jefferson and Adams had huge issues with Thomas mm -hmm. Paine. But anyway, we're going to kind of, I mean, that's wrapping up common sense there because I want Nick to finish up this history of, of Thomas Paine. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll keep moving. Okay. So like I mentioned earlier, he, from what little earnings he did based, uh, get from common sense based on his uh, inequitable uh, negotiations with the publishers, obviously, he donates that to the Continental Army. And then an interesting fact that I actually had no idea about, he actually serves in the Continental Army. He serves as an aide to a general. And it's during this time where he's actually out in the, I guess he was never in the battlefields, but he's actually out with the army uh, aiding this general in the camps where he writes uh, The American Crisis. And this is another series of pamphlets that is super famous that he writes during the war and gets uh, actually read to the troops. And he has a bunch of sound bites, basically, that come out of here that are super popular to this day. Uh, in fact, the opening lines are, this is probably the most famous quote from it, these are the times that try men's souls. That's the opening sentence, and that's super famous now. Like, presidents have quoted this, like modern presidents. Um, and then he has another famous quote here that says, Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So it's basically a bunch of sound bites about what's going on during the war. And he writes this, and it gets read. Like, the story is that the night before Washington crosses the Delaware, they read this to the troops and, like, things like that. So I don't know how much of that is mythology and how much of it's real, but it is fact that he actually writes this uh, during his time uh, when the war is going on. Uh, then he goes back to Europe, basically, after uh, the end of the war. I'm going to talk about a very specific instance that happens right at the end of the war, but we'll do that later on towards the end. Uh, so in 
by 1786, Paine had removed himself from political life and was basically working on his scientific endeavors. Uh, like I said, I didn't even know he was into science before we did research for this episode. So he starts inventing things, and he invents a smokeless candle, and he invents a design for a new type of iron bridge that would be much more uh, resilient than a wooden bridge that gets destroyed by ice uh, on a river and etc. And in April of 1787, he sails from New York to Europe, to uh, basically go on tour and try to promote his bridge design and try to find someone to buy and produce it. Um, and he basically thought that he was done with politics at that point. He was just going to go be an inventor and sell this bridge and move on with a new phase of his life. But uh, we know based on history that he was uh, absolutely mistaken. In England, uh, after during this period, he writes... Uh, Probably the most famous internationally writing that he does, The Rights of Man. And this is a response to a work by Edmund Burke that's titled The Reflections on the Revolution in France. The full title of Paine's writing, which I love, I love the writing, Jared knows this, the titles of the writings during the like Enlightenment era and a little bit afterwards because they're so awesome. So the full title of The Rights they're of Man... They're so long. <laughs> yeah. The full title of The Rights of Man is... The Rights of Man Being an Answer to Mr. Burke's Attack on the French Revolution. That's the full title. Um, and basically, Burke is attacking the French Revolution, and Paine comes to its defense in this writing. He defends the revolution, and this writing contains a scathing critique of monarchy and hereditary right. Um, like I said, this brings him international fame, and it sells uh, between 100,000 and 200,000 copies in uh, when it's published in the first uh, couple of years after its publication, which, like, these are massive numbers for the times. We have to understand that. Now we're like, oh, a book sold 100,000 copies. That's pretty awesome. But, like, back then, you have to understand. Uh, I think – I don't have it written here, but I think I read that uh, in the couple of years following its publication, it, it was outsold only by the Bible. Like, literally, that's how popular it was. Wow. I, I'm, that's all I have is wow. Yeah. I did not know that. That's... Um, so, like I said, this brings some international fame, but England absolutely hates everything about it. Um, and they actually ban its sale in England, and they charge Payne with seditious libel and treason, which I did not know before doing research for this episode. So he flees to France because... His work, Rights of Man, and its defense of the revolution is so popular that the uh, French revolutionaries grant him a position as a deputy to the French National Convention. So he flees to Paris in 1792 and accepts that position. While he's in France, his trial in England, he's charged with uh, seditious libel, continues in his absence and he's actually found guilty and he's not allowed to return to England out of fear of arrest. Then... He falls out of favor with the French leaders because he argues against the execution of Louis XVI. And he argues that instead of being – this is kind of interesting. I think it's kind of funny actually. He argues that instead of being executed, Louis should be forced to go live in America and experience democracy, which I think is funny. Um, and obviously the French are having none of that and we all know what ends up happening to uh, Louis. But it's at this time – he falls out of favor with the French leaders, but he can't re return to England because he'll be arrested there, and he can't return to America because he's afraid that he'll get intercepted by a British warship and then return to England. This so dude's life is incredible. He's basically stuck in France. Um, and then, since he's stuck there, he eventually gets arrested under orders uh, by Robespierre. 
and he spends 10 months in a French prison. Though it's kind of interesting that the prison he's in used to be a palace, so I don't actually know how like shitty the prison was, but whatever. They reappropriate this palace as a prison. Um, and he's in the prison during the Reign of Terror. And he writes to, uh, I can't remember who he writes to, but he writes letters at this time talking about he is fearful of execution on a daily basis because all of his friends that are also in the prison are being executed. Yeah, 40,000 during the Reign of Terror if we ever do an episode on the French Revolution. Yeah. In fact, there's a story, I don't know how accurate this is or whether it's myth, but it, they say that the only reason he escaped execution uh, by the guillotine was because his cell had been mismarked. And while they were going down the road to pull people out and take them to the guillotine, that his cell was mismarked and the execution executioner passed it by. I don't know how much that's mythology or not, but it's in one of the historical articles that I read. So super interesting. Um, Whether or not it's true, it's awesome to add to the story. Um, During this time, and this is when he has a fallout with George Washington, he obviously is pleading to his American friends to get him out of prison. And he specifically writes to Washington, and Washington, who's president at this time, by the way, doesn't respond. No response. Ghosted. Yep. George Washington ghosted ghosted one of the most important uh, colleagues of the revolutionary process that eventually puts this kid in power. This kid. I said kid. He's an old (laughs) man by then. This guy in power. Yep. Straight up no response. Ghosted him. The one person from America God, that like does help him is James Monroe, who you, I'm assuming, know, our listeners know, goes on to become the fifth president of the United States. But at this time, he's acting in France as the ambassador to France. So Monroe actually uses his influence and uh, helps uh, Thomas Paine get out of prison. And Paine gets absolutely physically destroyed by his 10 months that he spends in prison. He's hugely ill. And so when he gets out, he actually lives in Monroe's house uh, for a few years until he recovers. So I didn't know that Monroe and Paine were tight either before doing research on this episode. That's super interesting. Um, it's during this time in France, and it's fact, it's actually while he's in prison most of, mostly that he publishes The Age of Reason, which is probably the third most famous writing that he does. And in this writing, he condemns all world religions. Uh, I just have one quote from here because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it does contribute to sort of his legacy um, in an interesting way. So in this, he says, quote, All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Each of those churches accuses the other of unbelief, and for my own part, I disbelieve them all. Straight up just shredding religion. Um, so, like I said, he actually writes this during the Reign of Terror while he's in France. So... I mean, it's interesting, and it kind of shows how he really feels, especially when I just got done reading, like, those other parts of Common Sense, where those are clear appeals to Protestant Christianity. And this kind of verifies he himself is not a Protestant Christian at all. He is just he, – he knows what he's doing. He is manipulating the minds of his audience. So – and that's wildly important for manufacturing a mythos. Yep. Yeah. He himself is religious. It's interesting, like, other people – like, there's a quote from uh, Teddy Roosevelt that says – I can't remember the exact – I'll paraphrase, but, like – that Thomas Paine was a rascally atheist or something like that. He wasn't actually an atheist. He believed in God. He just did not believe in structured religion. Uh, so think back to his background as his father being a Quaker and so forth. Um, then finally, he's uh, the one last remaining friend he has that's a founding father is Thomas Jefferson. And when Jefferson is elected president in 1800, two years later, he sends a ship to Spain and picks up, or sorry, Spain, sends a ship to France and picks up Paine. 
So Payne gets brought back to America by Thomas Jefferson. Um, and yeah, so he spends the rest of his life in uh, the United States, which I did not know, and he ends up dying there. Um, and I love this quote. Uh, I'm going to read this uh, from... Uh, like I said, historian Jill Lepore, she wraps up her article on pain by saying this. Uh, in fact, she starts talking about, uh, by talking about James Adams and what he, or sorry, John Adams and what he says about pain. So I'll start with that quote. Um, and actually, Jared already read part of this. Uh, I know whether, I know not whether any man in the world has had more influence on its inhabitants or affairs for the last 30 years than Tom Paine, Adams admitted, adding with irony, worthy of the author of Common Sense, call it then the age of pain, which Jared just read. And then Jill uh, Lepore says, Adams wrote these words in 1806 as if Paine were already dead. He was not. That year, a neighbor of Paine's came across the old man himself in a tavern in New York. So drunk and disoriented and unwashed and unkempt that his toenails had grown over his toes like bird's claws. While Adams, at his home in Quincy, busied himself reflecting on the age of Paine, Paine hobbled to the polls in New Rochelle to cast a vote in a local election. He was told that he was not an American citizen and was turned away. So much for the rights of man. Three years later, as the 72-year-old Payne lay dying in a house in Greenwich Village, his doctor pressed him, Do you wish to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Payne paused, then whispered, I have no wish to believe on that subject. And Payne dies at the age of 72 uh, in New York. So, I want to talk about his legacy and why, even though he's one of the most famous, he should be one of the most famous, quote-unquote, founding fathers, he's basically, uh, we don't learn hardly anything about him in this, the narrative that is United States history, except for probably common sense. Um, so why? The answer, the question is, why was he largely written out of history? And I'm going to read another quote from uh, Jill Lepore, which actually made me laugh. And the fact that this makes it into an academic publication uh, cracks me up uh, even more. So uh, she says, in the comic book version of history that serves as our national heritage, where the founding fathers are like the Hanna-Barbera super friends, <laughs> Payne is Aquaman to Washington's Superman and Jefferson's Batman. We never find out how he got his superpowers, and he shows up only when they need someone who can swim. And uh, I laugh like, out loud, literally, when I read that for the first time. And, like, it's totally true. When we read the history of this period of the United States, pain is basically, like, an afterthought. And they're like, yeah, common sense was cool and helped rally the troops. And, like, that's literally all that we hear about Thomas Paine. Um, so there's some very specific reasons, obviously, why this is true. One of them is super interesting, and I did not know until doing research for this. Uh, but after the War for Independence, Congress actually asks Paine to write the history of the American Revolution. And he declines. And I did not know that. Um, and instead, the history is written by Mercy Otis Warren, who was a poet and playwright uh, and close friends with Abigail and John Adams. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine the Adams, at least John's, influence on what happens. Mm -hmm. She literally only mentions Thomas Paine in a footnote in this history. Now, it's an extensive footnote where she talks about Paine and etc. However, when you read the footnote... 
she literally only mentions common sense in one sentence in passing. The entire rest of the footnote is how basically Paine was an anti-religious heathen uh, for writing The Age of Reason and condemning all religion. And that's literally – so in the first official American writing about the American Revolution, He's Paine relegated to a footnote. He's literally relegated to a footnote. And this is how footnote. you manufacture a false narrative, which is like why we're doing this whole podcast is right off the bat like – and these are primary sources and yet we're still seeing how biased and gross they are. To try and, again, frame their story. Yep. It's ridiculous. 100%. Uh, relegated to a footnote, literally. Um, so some of the other reasons that we know that we don't hear about Thomas Paine a lot when we're learning about American history is because of his views on slavery. Uh, that was not favorable by any of the founding fathers, except, uh, yeah, no, none of them. Maybe a Franklin I would stretch to even make that, but yeah, but, yeah. none of the rest of them wanted to hear anything about I mean, that. even Jefferson, even though he went and saved him, was not a fan yeah, of, of Paine's views on slavery. And, and we know, you know, Jefferson's views on slavery are like, well, he was all about it. So. Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, the other one that's interesting is that his, that the founding fathers wanting nothing, nothing to do with, especially John Adams, and this was his huge beef with Paine, was his support of radical democracy. Uh, Paine argues in Common Sense and Other Writings for true republicanism, which was only used as like a pejorative before this time until Paine popularizes it basically. And Paine supported the fact that all men, regardless of their status or property ownership, should be allowed to vote and to hold public office. Adams and most of the rest of the founding fathers have massive beef with this, which we're going to touch on later in future episodes. But that was one of the reasons that the founding fathers sort of disowned Paine, because like Jared's already said, he was too radical for them uh, definitely in this regard, for sure. And then finally, uh, his condemnation of all religions didn't go over real well with uh, most of the founding fathers. In fact, I have a quote from Sam Adams here in response to uh, The Age of Reason. He writes to Paine directly, Do you think your pen or the pen of any other man can unchristianize the mass of our citizens? And then he writes a scathing critique, critique of The Age of Reason. Interestingly, I think that this is one of the reasons that his friendship with Thomas Jefferson survived, because if you know anything about Thomas Jefferson's uh, beliefs, he believed basically the same things about religion. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, little tidbit there, is that's probably why he ended up in America and died there, was because Jefferson, even though they disagreed probably on the aspect of slavery, I mean, not probably, they definitely disagreed on the aspect of slavery, they did agree on the uh, perspective of religion. So Jefferson's really the only one that sticks through pain, sticks with pain uh, through all of his Right, Jefferson writings. went so far, and since we're definitely not doing an episode on this, it's just a nice little side note. Jefferson, I mean, how far he went is he wrote his own version of the Bible and removed all of the miracles and God and everything from it just because he liked its moral compass. He liked what it was trying to teach people, but took all the God and miracles out of it. It's called the Jeffersonian Bible, if you're ever curious. Yeah, you can actually Google it, and they have yeah. the Smithsonian Institute has super cool pictures of it, so you can mm -hmm. see the physical pages. Like, Jefferson literally copied and cut and pasted and made his own version of the Bible where he literally like with a knife cuts out the all of the references to anything supernatural uh, in the New Testament. And he basically just writes a story of Jesus's life without anything supernatural in it, which is super interesting. Uh, so yeah, look that up if you're interested. But that brings us to a close basically on Thomas Paine, his life and legacy, and basically why we don't hear a lot about uh, this. Yeah. 
founding father. I mean, yeah. I think he should be right up in there with every conversation I, about I, I, everyone. We else. like him so much better than any of the other architects that we're going to basically denigrate in the next few episodes. I mean, the guy was a really radical thinker, and while he was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, it was his it was his willingness to kind of push the uh, philosophical envelope that eventually, you know, alienated him even in during revolutionary processes both here in what would become the United States and then even more radical revolutions like France which was way more radical than than the United States. They changed way more things in France than the United States ever changed here and yet he was still too radical for France. Uh, this dude was a badass. And obviously too radical for England. He goes back and then oh. writes a support of the French Revolution and then gets tried and found guilty there of sedition, basically. So, yeah. Everywhere he goes, he's too radical because he wants equality and true freedom. So we should freedom. make t-shirts with him and Che. Totally. <laughs> All right. We should, like, merge them together. Like Thomas <laughs> Paine with a beret on. And, like, yeah. <laughs> Dope. All right. That wraps it up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast and our Myth is America series. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. Uh, send us a tweet at Rev and Ideology. Do us a huge favor and go onto your favorite podcast app wherever you're listening to this and leave us a rating and a review. That'll really help us out uh, and help us find our listeners. You can also uh, please share this podcast with your friends and on social media wherever you see fit. The music that we used in the introduction uh, comes from an artist. You can find him on YouTube at The Versatile Artist. Uh, once again, thanks. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.